The following interview was recorded live at the North American Menopause Society, or NAMS, annual meeting. Founded in 1989, NAMS is North America's leading nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the health and quality of life of all women during midlife and beyond through an understanding of menopause and healthy aging. Hello, this is Dr. Prathima Sethi, and I'm your host for this segment on ReachMD. Today we have with us Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg. Dr. Kingsburg is Professor of Reproductive Biology and Psychiatry at Case Western University School of Medicine and the Chief of Behavioral Medicine at University Hospital Case Medical Center in Cleveland, Ohio. Today she will be discussing sexual health in postmenopausal women. Thank you so much for being with us today, Dr. Kingsburg, and discussing this very important and relevant topic for many postmenopausal women. Good day, Dr. Seti. So, Dr. Kingsburg, can you talk about sexual health and, and why it is such an unmet need? The reality is that sexuality and sexual health is important to all of us, whether we're a patient or whether we're a healthcare provider. Yet, unfortunately, it's still a little bit underground. We still, unfortunately, are a little uncomfortable discussing sexuality. And there are often not enough treatment options for healthcare providers to feel comfortable talking to patients. So there are a number of barriers, I think, that get in the way for healthcare professionals to address the sexual concerns of their patients. First of all, we all assume there's no time. We're all afraid to open Pandora's box to say, do you have any sexual health concerns? And then there goes 20 minutes, there goes 30 minutes. But the reality is, if you ask, most patients can give you a response in less than a minute for you to address their sexual health concerns. Another barrier is that healthcare professionals honestly are uncomfortable discussing sexuality. We don't really teach it very well in medical school. We're trying to work on that. Nurse practitioners don't necessarily get enough training. Healthcare professionals are not really taught well to be comfortable assessing and treating the sexual health concerns of their patients. So Dr. Kinsberg, as I understand it, hypoactive sexual desire disorder is very common in the postmenopausal age group. Can you comment on this disorder and how it's diagnosed? Hypoactive sexual desire disorder is defined as the absence of all interest or wanting of sexual activity. There's no thoughts, dreams, fantasies. Women will describe an absence of any interest in wanting to be sexual. The DSM-4 categories are hypoactive sexual desire disorder, but the DSM-5, which is the new classification of sexual disorders, is now called female sexual interest slash arousal disorder, which combines both the loss of interest with the inability to feel aroused, including uh, lubrication or a subjective sense of feeling sexually aroused. Hypoactive sexual desire disorder is the most prevalent sexual disorder of women of all ages. In the postmenopausal group, it's probably around 12.5% of all women. Across the board, it's about 10%. So one in 10 women essentially meet the criteria for loss of sexual desire with distress. In order to diagnose it, again, you need to meet the criteria of having lost uh, all or almost all um, interest in sexual activity, but it is not really a difficult disorder to diagnose, and in fact, 
we have screeners available that make it pretty easy for a, a non-specialist to diagnose. For example, we have the decreased sexual desire screener that is in the public domain that clinicians can download, and it essentially has five questions that allow the clinician to gather that the woman has lost interest and that the loss of sexual interest is not due to other conditions that would sort of preclude a diagnosis. For example, it's not due to partner issues, it's not due to other health problems, it's not due to um, medication side effects. So can you discuss the major factors associated with sexual desire disorder? In order to really understand hypoactive sexual desire disorder, I think it's best to understand what desire itself is. Desire is a deceptively simple term. Everybody thinks they know what it is. It's easy to pronounce, it's easy to spell, uh, unlike other medical conditions. But really, to understand desires, to recognize that it's really comprised of three separate but related components. And we think about desire within a biopsychosocial model. So when you think about desire, the first component of desire is a biologic component, which we would call drive, for example. The biologic component is, uh, is experienced as spontaneous sexual interest. When your body signals to you through sexual thoughts, dreams, a little genital tingling, what your patients know is feeling horny, that's spontaneous sexual interest and that would be drive. And that is determined by biologic mechanisms, neurochemistry, neuroendocrine mechanisms, hormones, neurotransmitters, all impact biologic drive. The second component to sexual desire is a cognitive piece, which really reflects a person's uh, expectations, their beliefs, cultural values, religious factors. All of that will contribute to a woman's either interest in or lack of interest in sexual desire. And then the third component of desire is motivation. And motivation reflects all of the interpersonal and psychological factors that creates essentially a willingness to bring your body to a sexual encounter. So each component contributes to one's desire, and each component in and of itself could be compromised. And the best way to think about treating sexual desire problems is to think about which component has been compromised. So if a woman walks into your office and says, you know, my relationship is good, I have comfortable feelings about sexuality, I don't have any religious or cultural factors that are contributing to my discomfort, but I've lost sexual interest and I don't really understand why and I want it back, we would think that she may have a biologic component. And unfortunately, at this point, there are no FDA-approved pharmacologic treatments for that. However, if she walks into my office or your office and says, you know, um, I have drive, I, you know, Fifty Shades of Grey I, still turns me on, or, you know, if I, if I watch George Clooney, I can still get turned on but I'm not really motivated to be sexual with my partner anymore. I, you know, I'm a little bored. Then we would think about that being a little bit more of the motivational issue. And again, that would, that would form our basis for a treatment option. Do we think about psychotherapy to address sort of the interpersonal factors, or are we looking for something that might be a biologic treatment option? If you are just tuning in, we are with Dr. Cheryl Kingsburg, and she is discussing sexual health in the postmenopausal patient. So, Dr. Kingsburg, in your practice, what are the first lines of treatment? How do you how do you treat these women? Treatment is really determined by the components of sexual desire that have been compromised. So, the first thing in treatment really is to uh, actually ask about sexual concerns. 
honestly, that is one of the biggest barriers to addressing sexual problems that we're uncomfortable asking. And one of the reasons I think healthcare professionals are uncomfortable asking is that we don't really feel like we have a great uh, array of treatment options. So unfortunately, at this point um, in time, there are 26 drugs approved for some form of male sexual dysfunction, and there are zero FDA-approved pharmacologic options for treating hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So that certainly is a barrier for many clinicians who really like to offer something pharmacologic. So that leaves them with either off-label, unapproved treatments, or referral to psychotherapy for or sex therapy, which has its place. Believe me, I'm a sex therapist, so I, I certainly think that it's important and it's valuable. But when there's a biologic basis to the the underlying problem, then we have to think about other options. But that's really one of the barriers. But it really is about determining, is there a biologic basis to the condition, or is it really interpersonal and psychological? And that's how you're going to form treatment. But asking really is the best way to at least start a treatment option. When we think about teaching healthcare professionals about treating sexual concerns, I think office-based counseling really is best followed using the PLICIT model. And when I say PLICIT, it means P-L-I-S-S-I-T. The PLICIT model really is nice because it offers clinicians an array of treatment options starting with the very basic thing of P, meaning permission giving. If all a clinician is comfortable doing is telling a woman that she's she has a right to good sexual health, then he or she has already provided some treatment. Or if permission means uh, allowing her permission to talk about sexual concerns by asking, then he or she has already provided some treatment. Or permission to feel like she's not alone in the fact that sexual problems are very widespread. So many women will walk into my office and they'll think they're the only one that has a sexual problem and that you know there's something terribly wrong with them specifically because nobody else talks about it. So that would be a P. The limited information, the LI, really could be something as simple as using a mirror and showing a woman where her clitoris is or guiding her to a website so that she can learn something about uh, sexuality and normalize that, or to give her a book, or to give her some basic information about how the sexual response works. That would be just simple, limited information. The SS of specific suggestions can be something like offering a woman or suggesting to a woman that she use a lubricant if she's not having enough of her own lubrication or to use a long-acting moisturizer if uh, she's postmenopausal and has some dryness uh, or to have sexual activity in the morning when there's more energy and it also boosts your immune system or to alter unsatisfying sexual activity that no longer is possible due to some health concerns. And then the IT, the intensive therapy, most clinicians, unless they want to specialize, really aren't going to be doing that. The best offer for intensive treatment is to find one or two people in your city that provide sex therapy and have them in your contact list and make that referral. Even if, at, unfortunately, if you live in rural areas, that may mean telemedicine, but our world is getting smaller, so there should be many options. So, Dr. Kingsburg, do you have any final thoughts for our listeners regarding this very important topic? The final message I'd like to give to the listeners out there is that women deserve treatment options, and we as healthcare providers really need to advocate for our patients. One way to do that is 
for you and your patients to go to womendeserve.org. And if you just go to that website, patients can sign a petition. We can all sign the petition that says to the FDA, women deserve uh, treatment options. And it sends a message that we care uh, that women no longer have to sort of live in silence uh, with an unmet medical need. So I thank you for even considering the sexual health of your patients. Please just ask. You can't treat a problem if you don't know it exists. Thank you so much, Dr. Kingsburg. That was a great review and very enlightening on uh, sexual health. Thank you for joining us today. I am your host, Dr. Prathima Sethi, and you've been listening to ReachMD Radio. If you missed any part of this discussion, please visit ReachMD.com to download this podcast. Thank you for listening.